everybody, welcome to Faith and Culture. And we're diving into the issues in our culture and how we deal with those and really how our faith integrates with that. And so we're going to have various guests on the show over time. And we're really trying to dive into this idea of, one, their story. We want to hear interesting stories. We want to hear uh, people's lives and how they've gone into the culture and been successful and really integrated their faith into their life in so many different ways. As we talked about at Skyline Church especially, we talk about having a faith that seven days a week. And so that means we don't compartmentalize it. And so during this show, what we're doing is, of course, we're tackling those issues. We're not running away from culture. We're bringing our faith into culture. And today, my guest is none other than Bob Taylor. Taylor Guitars, for one, uh, among other things. And Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate that. And yeah. So we're going to jump in and just kind of talk a little bit about your life and really starting with where you grew up and kind of tell us about your family upbringing and then how you came to faith. Well, okay. Uh, I grew up mostly in San Diego. My mom and dad are from Montana, and they were married in Missoula, and uh, my dad joined the Navy, needed a job. I was a couple of years old at the time, and, and no, I wasn't. I was a couple of years old when he rejoined the Navy. Okay. I was born in Oakland when he was in the Navy. He stayed in for two years, and then he got out, moved to Bozeman, spent a year there, and he's like, no, I, I, I needed that job. So we moved back. We came to San Diego. I, I spent uh, my kindergarten, first grade years down on right up by Gompers Junior High, oh, yeah. right off of Euclid in 94. That's mm -hmm. where we lived. Wow. And uh, we moved to Virginia for a couple of years and came back to San Diego when I was in the fourth grade. And I've been here ever since. So I wow. call myself San Diego. Yeah, for sure. That makes you. Yeah. And my parents were uh, Christians. Our, our family is Christian. Mm -hmm kind of as far as I can see. It's, yeah. it's interesting. It's a little bit different story than a lot of people who, who uh, came to faith, came to God, came to Christ, you know, really through a difficult situation. Yeah. But our situation was, you know, that was our culture. It was our life. Mm -hmm. It really, really was. And uh, it's kind of funny because talking, I mean, just my dad's passed away. My mom's still alive. She turns uh, 90 on the 11th of next month, one more month away. Um, but uh, I'd always felt like a Montanan because my, my, my dad felt like he was a fish out of water, no pun intended, in the mm -hmm. Navy down here. And uh, so they reti he retired from the Navy on July 4th, 1972. Mm -hmm. He called it Independence Day. And <laughs> they were in their car an hour later driving to Spokane, Washington. So my parents abandoned me and I was down here and wow. was uh, 18 years old, I guess. And yeah. I started making guitars at this little shop called the American Dream. So as a family, it was, it was something you grew up with going to church. Would you say you guys were churchgoers, you're saying, or was it more Christmas Easter? What was it like? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, oh, and whatever that. in between. Okay. Mm-hmm. Assemblies of God. Okay. And my church experience growing up was in Claremont, a little church called Claremont Assembly of God. Okay. And that's where we went. And we went to church. When we lived in Virginia, I was in second and third grade, and I don't really remember yeah. that much about it. I, I, don't, I can't put a place to it, you know. 
but uh, yeah, we got in, we were super involved. Awesome. And then so you grew up in the church, and then so your parents leave, and you start at this guitar shop. Uh, at that point, your faith, you know, if it hadn't been already, it became your own or needed to become your own at that point. Were you going to church, or was there like a story of so many people, there was a time where you drifted away from from your relationship with the Lord or church or anything of that during that time? Not for a minute. Yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, maybe sometimes inside mm -hmm. I drifted away. Sure. But my legs took me to church. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and sometimes that's what gets you through. Amen. Sometimes it's the promise you make or the habits that you do that get you through. Yeah. But uh, <clears throat> I was a clean-cut kid, didn't get in trouble, and, and we, I went to church. And... Uh, I continued that church. Had a, we started a uh, small Christian band at the church that I was attending, Claremont Assembly, the people that I went to church with. And we played around San Diego and a little bit outside of San Diego, but we played a lot. And we wrote music, played it. And gosh, just before we started growing up and had to quit, people were getting married and oh, yeah. that kind of things. We were playing 20 times a month at churches around here. It was, okay. yeah. So I was living, you, you grow up playing guitar, you want to play, there's nothing better than gear, equipment, PAs, wheeling all that in and wheeling it all out. It's, it's, it's a hobby and a love. I don't want to do that right now. Yeah. But um, we, we did that all the time. So did I was you, involved in church. I, I went, I worked on guitars and I went to church. Those are the two things I did in my life. Did you uh, teach yourself how to play guitar? Yeah, not very well. About? Okay. I'm not a good guitar player. Okay. And by the way, I played guitar here at Skyline for two and a half decades. And finally, it was time to step down. And man, the people who play now, they're so good. That's awesome. I love listening to our worship band. Yeah. They're so good. And uh, uh, even a rotation of people. It's, yeah. the, the music here is really good yeah amen that's awesome. you can bring somebody yeah and you could be proud that's great which is a really cool thing that is so good yeah so you are um you know you're interested obviously you're playing guitar but what got you into building them so do you went to work at that shop or you went to build guitars at that shop like what was the initial job there well let me back up um, I tried making a guitar when I was 12. I was too young. I couldn't finish it. Okay. And then 7th, um, 8th, and ninth grade, I was in San Diego City Schools, not the county schools. We had junior high and high school, not middle school and high school. Yeah. So there's three years of junior high, and I had, like, the best teacher ever in metal shop. Ernest Labastida, hmm. a man who poured his life into me, come in on Saturdays and open up that shop, teach me how to do things. I loved that guy. He was great. He's still alive today. I've seen him. And, uh, well, he put time into me because I was actually freakishly good at making things. Mm -hmm. Right? So it was, a, it was a symbiotic relationship. Man, I lapped it up from him, and he loved helping because yeah. he, he's not. You know, a lot of times shop classes where somebody went to bide time, but I was industrious. And uh, I got into high school, continued taking shop classes classes we don't have anymore yeah that's another topic yep but if it hadn't been for those i don't know that i'd be a guitar builder the a a white collar professional 
path for me would have been the kiss of death. Mm. Really would, man. Yeah, I can't imagine. In fact, I got out of high school, rode my motorcycle midsummer to uh, Mesa Community College, got off, parked it, walk up to where you register, got in the line and said, I can't do this. I turned around and I walked away. Wow. It's like, I can't, I can't do it. it. I can't do it. Yeah. And, uh, and so then in high school, I was taking more classes and I needed a guitar. I wanted a guitar. I'd seen a 12 string guitar music store downtown called Apex Music. If you've been around here for a long time, you might remember that store. There's three or four of them. And I thought, I can't afford to buy one, I can build one. And so then I started. And my teacher was uh, Larry Kaiser. Hmm. And you know the Lurkooks, Russ and Dottie. Mm -hmm. Turns out, all these years later, all these years later, he was neighbors with them for, really? for forever. And I just went to his 90th birthday party oh, this last year. That's amazing. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So to be in touch with these guys, he helped me. He helped me by letting me. That's how he helped me. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you're working in the shop and really being mentored as well. And how, how does it go to that next level? At what point is it? I think I'm starting to do Well, that. along the way... I had to, I learned that I had to buy some supplies to make a guitar. And I discovered this little place in Lemon Grove called the American Dream Music, and they made guitars. And I went there and I bought some stuff. And I mean, I'm 16 years old. And the guy who ran it, his name was Sam Ratting. He's a, he might have been the original hippie at San Diego State. Hmm. And that guy can make things. It's really good to this day. Sam can make things. He knows how to make things. And he took a shine to me. Same thing back. Where I'm at this point, I'm 18 years old, about to graduate. And I asked if there was a possibility that I could work this. This is a little tiny shop in Lemon Grove and right off of Main Street. And um I hung out long enough to where I was welcome. And it wasn't formal employment. You make a guitar, you have to pay some money to the shop and you get to keep some money. And it was a yeah. kind of a commune sort of a sure. thing. And I showed up and, oh, there was a bunch of, there was a cast of characters there. But I was the pure white t-shirt, clean cut, kid that didn't cuss or drink or smoke. Mm -hmm. And I made guitars and people were like, who's that guy over there keeps Turning out guitars, you know. <laughs> so there, and there was a couple times during that time that I went out to play music with people I met, and the next thing you know, the pot came out, and I just slinked out, you know, and just disappeared. They didn't even know that I had gone. Yeah. In, until later, I was really uncomfortable in those situations because of yeah. my upbringing and my beliefs. Yeah. And uh, and then one day Sam decided to sell. He wanted to get out of it. And how long are you working there at that point when he decided Less to sell? Less than a year. A year. Less than a year. Yes, than a year. Okay. And there was a... And you're, you're <clears throat> 19 or so? 18, you're saying, at that point? Or you... I started when I was 18. I transitioned so... to be 19. And I turned... My, my 68th birthday will be March 12th. So we have two shopping months left from the time that, <laughs> we're, that we <laughs> are recording this. Yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, so March I turned 19... And by October, I had partnered up with two guys that worked there. 
and we bought the place. Eight years later, one of those two guys and I bought out the third partner, and Kurt Listug is his name. We're still partners today. Mm-hmm. And Kurt became my partner because his dad asked him, hey, before I loan you money to buy this little shop, do you know how to make guitars? Kurt said, no, not really. Well, who does? Well, this kid, Bob Taylor, knows how to do it. Yeah. Well, get him to be your partner, and I'll loan you the money. So we, we pitched in money. We came up with $10,000. We paid Sam 3000 bucks. We took over this little tiny shop, took over the rent. That building is still there today. And um, uh, we're in business. That's amazing because, I mean, 19 years old, you're, you're a business owner. Just like that. And so now that, to me, would be an easy time to say, I'm going to focus on my business now. I'm going to be here all the time doing this. And I'm sure you worked your tail off. But you still had the faith element. You weren't giving that up. You obviously were, during all those times, as you mentioned, there was some, you know, whether it was pot or probably drinking, probably everything else going on, especially when we talk about the music industry and, and even locally. And so what... At what point did you find Skyline Church? Because I'm thinking, okay, so the shop's in Lemon Grove, so that's probably not too far from the original campus. And so how did that all come about, going to Skyline? Well, during those first couple of years, we still had our group called Wings of Faith, and we were playing. So I, that, that 20 times okay. a month, I yeah. was playing during the same time I was building those guitars, still going to Claremont Assembly of God. It was my home. My parents had left. Um, I wasn't married. I didn't have a girlfriend, but I was there. I lived in Claremont, and I drove out here. My best friend and my other best friend, um, Marla and Steve, got married, and they got a home out here in Lemon Grove. They were married two days when I asked if I could move in with them, and <laughs> it's like, I don't, I can't afford the gas to drive from Claremont, yeah. and so I took a room in their place, oh, wow. and, um, <clears throat> and I was blocks away from where I, where I was working, and uh, no, I, the, my life was church and work, church and work. Uh, playing music at churches, attending, there, there was never a drift. And then uh, Cindy and I, my wife Cindy, we... Uh, at what point did you meet? Well, I was 20-something. She, her father was an Assemblies of God pastor in Spokane, Washington, where my parents had moved. Okay. And her father was, my grandfather and grandmother on the, my mom's side lived across the street from that church. So Pastor Rich, Cindy's dad, was best friends with my grandfather and my grandmother. My grandpa was retired by then and went over to the church and helped, and they were coffee buddies. And, and so we'd go to up there on vacation. I went up on vacation when my folks lived there, and I met Cindy when I was there. She was going to Evangel College in Springfield, Missouri. Her dad ended up coming down and became pastor of uh, La Mesa Assemblies of God over there in Jackson. So he was pastor there. She came home from church, or came home from school, I mean, graduated, and one thing led to another, and I called her up and asked her if I could take take her on a date to a free concert. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the Archers, which was, uh, they were a, a band, a Christian band from back in the Maranatha days. Okay. Okay. So we went to, I don't know, it could have been Faith Chapel. I think it was Faith Chapel. Oh, yeah. We went there. We went to that concert. 
six months later we were married. And uh, so then we started our life. Her father um, finally left the pastorate after many, many years, got a PhD in uh, psychology, moved to Denver. Hmm. And during that transition, we came to Skyline. Okay. I used to come to Skyline for youth events. We would get on a bus in Claremont and drive to the ends of the world. Yeah. And we'd end up up on Skyline Drive, yeah. and we'd be in what they called the center, the yeah. building that's down below the yeah. center. And, and the sanctuary had been built a few years earlier than that. I didn't know that until later. But um, it was time for Cindy and I to separate from there, have our own place. Um, being a pastor's family isn't the easiest thing in the world. Mm -hmm. There's, there's um, complications. You know that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we thought, hey, it's time to break away and go be just ourselves. So we went to Skyline. We met people. Uh, a man named Dick Barnes, they were great members of that church, was our adult Sunday school teacher. Then Russ and Dottie Lurcook were our next Sunday school teacher <laughs> for years. Pastor Butcher was there. Wow. And was then, he still senior pastor at that point? He was senior pastor. Yeah, so this is... What is is the seventies, eighties? Where, where are you at right now? We were married in seventy seven, so, so yeah, it was seventy eight so that we were there. Yeah. I can't remember what year he left. I don't really, I, I don't remember time in years. Yeah. Um, but then John came. Mm -hmm. John dedicated my oldest daughter, Manet. and uh, Dan Ryland and yeah. Tim Elmore, that whole yeah. group. Yeah, we're yeah, there, and there are our peers. On, with John Maxwell, did you understand early on his leadership gifting, or was that something that you saw year and year he was building and building and building? Year and year, I saw it. Yeah. At first, he was our pastor, <clears throat> great speaker. Mm -hmm. John's the kind of guy that when he comes to the pulpit, you're like, okay, Dad's home. Yeah. We feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. You can, you know, when you watch a figure skater. And you're nervous the whole entire time because you're just <laughs> afraid they're going to fall. Yes. Or you see someone who really shouldn't be singing a solo, sing one, and you're nervous. Well, some speakers are that way too. Yeah, it's true. John's not that way. Yeah. You're not that way. No. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, I eventually was on the board, yeah. eventually became vice chairman of the board, and and then I was in charge of the search for Jim, for Pastor Garlo. Okay, yeah. Except I was in charge of it by position, not by ability. Mm. And I knew that I didn't have the ability. And you, when you say you can't do something, ah, oh, yeah, you can. It's like, if I said I can't go 250 pull-ups right now, would you believe me? They look at me, yeah, I believe that. Okay, well, let me tell you. I'm not the person to actually do the search. Wow. But we had a fellow on our board named Don Mosher, and he was the person. And I asked him if he would be the person to do that, had my full support, had my advice, had, you know. Yeah. My, we could be a team, but he's, you could, I could tell by looking around the room, he's the guy. And he did. And for all you people out there in, 
church land, that's not an easy thing to do. And it can change you. And if you think that there's no struggle in a church, there is. So I said, Don, you can do this, but I want to warn you, it might change you. Mm. And in the, in the end, it, it did. It was, it was a huge, huge, huge burden to come to that decision. It didn't change it for the worst, yeah. but it was something that allowed him to rethink where, I mean, he, he ended up going to a different church and finding a nice home there, and every, everything's fine with his life, yeah. but those things can take it out of you. Yeah. And I knew that it, not only would it take it out of me, but I would not do a good job. But when it came down to the very, very, very end, and it kind of got handed back to me, yeah. Mm -hmm. I could, I could tell Jim was, Jim was the guy. Mm -hmm. We have an incredible church here when you think of our decades history. 60, what? 68. 68, 68 years, years and four pastors. Yeah. Okay. Unheard of. Really. Unheard of. Truly. And we, we talk about it on staff time to time, just the miracle on the mountain, even. And you were involved in that process. I was when there. you think about the hurdles that had to be overcome to get this church to this spot, it's amazing. I was, I was thinking about that when I drove through the parking lot because I came westbound from, you know, Rancho San Diego. And I came in, and just the parking lot drive up by the, the sheriff's station mm -hmm. all the way through and then to come up here that's a long drive yeah. when you think about it that's a lot of pavement that's a lot of road that's a lot of grading it's there's trees that are old the, the buildings that are here everything that's there yeah it's done and what we have left to do is easier because it's done totally it's done done yeah that's 100 percent. i mean i I think back on even those days of listening to Jim talk about some of those battles and even the boulders. How many boulders had to be removed? Blue granite. Blasted the blue granite that had to. The neighbors uh, that didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. They put up, they, they, they put up pictures of the mountain and then superimposed aircraft carriers on it to go to the, to the town council meetings, oh, the Valle yeah. d'Oro meetings, say, this is what it's going to look like. Yeah. Do you want an aircraft carrier? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about it, I mean, obviously, whatever it was with people in terms of, you know, uh, we have battles with environmentalists and we all, we all know people don't want any building, so many people in San Diego. Um, but yet, at the same time, there's an enemy that was pushing against um, the whole time. They didn't mm -hmm. want to see the kind of fruit that's mm -hmm. happening. They didn't want to see the kind of lives that would be making decisions for Christ. And, and so it certainly was quite the incredible spiritual battle. Mm -hmm. I think back, I heard a story, and you would have been there, so this is, I'm going to ask you this question. I heard a story about the board at that time, the property down where Target is, was available. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, that's it. <laughs> like, it's right there. And someone said, no, the mountain. And it ended up being the mountain. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Was that tr a true story, or how that even came about? It, it it's a true story, but it wasn't like somebody said it and it became that. It, yeah. it, um, I th th it's more nuanced than that. Uh -huh. Like, can we get permits for that? Are they going to let us do it? They, the you. zoning on that. Yeah. I think we had to take the more difficult piece, and it was way more difficult than we thought. Yeah. We were at, we were at, uh, we were on Skyline Drive in, in um, Lemon Grove at the time. 
this looked pretty amazing. And I mean, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. Who does? We're not developers. Right. We're a church. We're not developers. And this isn't Georgia where you could go buy another 40 acres of flat ground in yeah. Iowa. I mean, it could be real envious of people's uh, facilities when you go around the flat part of the world yeah. that doesn't have Mexico on one side, a desert on the other, Camp Pendleton on the other, and an ocean on the other, and you're yeah. boxed in, and it's all hills. Yeah. Right? And then you go someplace where it's just flat, and people, ah, we have 160 acres, we bought it for a song, and we're getting ready to do our next building, yep. and their building department's easy, and it's like, well, we got what we have, but it, it was hard won. Yeah. And again, I can think about the I'm going to say Russ and Dottie one more time. Sorry, yeah, because they're incredible. still alive and there. You know, Norma Suchecki's down there. The, yep. You know, the, the Millers finally left. They had to go because of health reasons and get up to Spokane and live with their son, Dan. But these are people that really built that, and they're still here. Imagine being in your mid-'80s, and you're listening to this worship team today, and you went through every music change that makes people cranky, and you're still here, and you're still faithful. It's the yeah. mark of Skyline. Skyline doesn't have grumpy people, and if they don't, they have a, if they do, they have a hard time uh, putting a band together of other grumpy people. Yeah, very true. There's something about that. It must, it must uh, God must have set that in place with Orville Butcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how things are started the foundation that was built and yeah you know all of that is something that we talk about quite a bit that we get to bear some fruit from all the labor and all the hard work to get the church to where it is yeah and it doesn't mean you're not doing hard work yeah yeah it doesn't mean that you don't have your own mm -hmm. mountains to climb sometimes the choices in a day is like which one of these not good choices am i going to take right right and especially if the answer is procrastination and you know that, you know, I like to say you're not going to get anything done until you, unless you're ready, willing to start before you're ready. Mm -hmm. And I also have another saying, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, yeah. right? And uh, you're not going to be good at everything that you do yep. until you do it, gain some experience, get better at it. And so I think it's a joy to have been here stay here through the changes, through the ups and the downs. If I were to say something to people who are listening, church hopping, I remember when Maxwell said something, oh, pastor, I don't feel like I'm getting fed. He's like, getting fed? You're fed way level, way beyond your level of obedience. Yeah. You know, I don't need to feed you more. That's right. right? You know, <laughs> and, um, and, I know that people need to find another environment sometime for some reasons, but stick it out because yeah. life is, it is like this. It's not always exactly what you want on the menu every time you come to the table. Yeah. Yep. That is a good point. Yeah. And so you're, um, you know, you're on the board, you're doing these things with the church, but yet now you also, let's go back a little farther and say, okay, now this business that you have is starting to 
what is it growing? Is it um, when do you decide to say it's going to be Taylor Guitars? Or I'm going to start oh, Taylor Guitars, or we're going to make this into what? It, how did it all come about? Well, we, uh, me and Kurt and Steve, bought that little shop from mm -hmm. Sam, and the next day we were in business, and the next day we had no money, and the next day we were buried in a flood. It rained, and our shop was flooded out, and then it was eight years, eight years of, of literally, I'd see an SDG and E truck going down the street in front of us, like he's going to turn our gas off. I just know he's going to turn our gas off, and. Struggle, 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 no money. Luckily, um, Cindy had a job as a teacher. By the way, all you people out there, she made $9,000 a year that, that year, you know. <laughs> yeah. But we found a little house in Lemon Grove to buy for $15,000, believe it or not. Wow. And uh, we lived there, came to Skyline. She worked. I made guitars. I didn't make any money. And somewhere six, seven years, we started paying ourselves a little bit. Our first paychecks were after I sat down with uh, Stephen Curtin and said, I'm tired of not getting paid. It's a bad habit. Yeah, It's a bad habit to not do that, right? And I said, so we need to get paid every Friday. Don't care what the amount is. So we did our ciphering, and we came up with 15 bucks a week. That's what we could pay ourselves. And I go, okay, well, I want my $15. <laughs> I said, we have to develop the habit yeah. of including us in that. So we started making 15 bucks a week. And then we said, oh, we're going to give ourselves a $5 a week raise. Every week, we work our way up to $85 a week. And we sat there for three or four years. And sometimes we didn't cash the checks. But eventually, after some years of Kurt driving around the country with a couple of guitar samples in his Volvo, and walking into music stores, cold calling, saying, hey, we make these guitars back here. And me back at the shop wow. making guitars, him and I talking on the telephone, he'd be, sometimes he'd go, I'm thinking of coming back. i go, don't, there's nothing to come back to. Don't come back. <laughs> Find another music store. Yeah. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. Go get some turkey down at the restaurant next mm. to Holiday Inn, watch a football game, and sell some more guitars. And like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> So that's what we did. And somewhere around year 10, 11, 12, things started to... 10, 11, 12. Take, they started to take root. We started making some guitars. We made a little bit of money. I remember the first day, as clear as could be, that I went home on a Friday. It was the summer, so it was light out. And, the, and I closed up the shop, and I felt like all my work was done for that week. That was 12 years into it, 11 years into it. I, I said, I'm... Going home, and I feel like my I got my work done. Yeah. What is, uh, when you, you look at that, right, because I, I love talking to entrepreneurs, and, you know, there's always this, the perseverance story and all that, but what what is the, for you, what kept you going that long? You're not getting embarrassment. Really? Explain that. Every time I thought about quitting, a picture, a little movie reel would come up in my mind of me running into somebody at the grocery store that I haven't seen for three years and them saying, so how's that guitar thing going? And me saying, well, I had to quit that. Mm. And I just would get back to work. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that happened. That, that's, that's interesting because, I mean, that reminds me of some of the athletes. When you're an athlete, some people are motivated for the win, but a lot of them are fearful of the loss. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, I, I don't want to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm fearful that my, my lack of preparation, if I didn't prepare enough, is going to be embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And it just goes along a little bit with what you're saying there is yeah. that idea of I didn't want to be embarrassed. And so you kept going, but there's also a passion. There had to be something you liked about it, right? To, to explain that, was there something that you really you had to enjoy it at some level? No. If you don't like to chop wood, carry water part of your job, I feel bad. It's a pretty good book. Have you read that book? No. Have you heard of that? Yeah. No. Yeah, it's a good, good book. But every job <clears throat> is mostly work. Yeah. Every job is mostly work. If there's some glamorous moments in that job, here and there, the rest of the time in between it is work. And I love the work. I like to make guitars. People say, what would you do if you didn't make guitars? I go, easy. I'd make guitars. Okay. It's what I do. Yeah. I'm going to figure this out because it's, it's, I was, I guess I was made, I felt that way. Yeah. The same thing as someone would have maybe as a calling, a calling. to do something. I was, it's like what I, I felt it was a good way to spend the culmination of my talents that I'd been given mm-hmm. by God. Those are God-given talents. You have to develop them. Sure. You don't go be lazy about that. Yeah. But you you realize that you have a talent, lean into that. So you're, let's say you're 10, 12 years in, you're starting to see, you know, this this is going to make it, or at least it's making it right now. Take me to that next step where uh, almost like the flywheel principle in uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, you know, it's it's years and years of this flywheel push, push, but then all of a sudden it starts taking on its own momentum uh, and, and gains that momentum. At what years did you start to notice like, or, it, you know, Taylor guitars are starting to get noticed more and more. Yeah, my, my, my father-in-law, who died young at 52 years of age, but he used to say, nothing succeeds like success, you know. And I always say, you have to be famous to be famous, you know. you got to crawl your way into being noticed and we were selling guitars to dealers, and they liked them, and they struggled to sell them. But we had what we called dealers that would pioneer our line. They, these were guys that didn't want to sell what everybody else was selling, wanted to take a little bit of time to show somebody something they liked. And we had, we had those guys on our side, and we were figuring out how to make profit because it's really easy to make a guitar and spend more money making it than you can sell it for. Mm-hmm. That was my job. Kurt's job was telling me whether we're making profit or not and figuring out the sales, the marketing. He became an incredible accountant, finance guy. Mm. We both got good at the two things we added to the business. Um, And I would say that there were several, several, several points along the way where I thought, um, well, this might work. Usually the way I express it is, Guess I'm not going to go out of business this week, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and those things happen all the way till today. COVID hits, something happens. COVID ends, something else happens, and there's ups and there's downs and there's surprises, and that, that your ability to spin, turn, change. I always say, you want to get in for more, you want to get out for less. Everyone's trying to get out for less. Let's get in for more. So usually when things get bad, we get in for more, mm-hmm. you know, and our dealers figure that out. So uh, 
what I've gotten out of it now is way, way beyond what I ever would have dreamed back then, but it's not beyond what I would have dreamed five years ago. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You climb a mountain, I, these, oh, yeah. these analogies are, you know, everyone uses them, but then you can see. Mm -hmm. But there's something in the way. You gotta get over there to see a little bit more before you arrive at the ocean and then like George Carlin said, now you gotta build a pier to get out there a little bit because <laughs> you're just not quite satisfied. Yeah. You know, gotta yeah. walk out another couple hundred yards yes. and then get a boat and go to Hawaii, yeah, you know, but right. uh, it, it just slowly grew. And good habits, good financial habits. Um, like that would be tough. What, what does that look like? Good financial habits. When you're a growing business, it's easy to say, we're going to risk a lot so that we can get to the next level. But what was a good financial habit at that point? Realize that profit is for the future. Um, try and get your profit enough to where you can save half of it. Well, you're going to pay taxes with half of it. The other, the other half you save out of that you can use some of it to build a, a fortress balance sheet so to speak mm -hmm. you know and then the other part you can invest to where you're uh and then use uh learn how to use financing properly outside money properly we've we've we have not always been a debt-free company but we've always been a company that could pay off our debt mm -hmm. right we could be debt-free, but we're using that money instead of this. Yeah. Um, if you're a business owner, keep your business separate from your personal. Keep it separate. Don't go using your business to buy things for you yeah. that you can't afford with the salary you're paying yourself. Yeah. You know, those are those are some of the that's things that I could right say. There. I mean, that's really a nugget when you think about what you just said. <laughs> is we weren't always debt-free, but we could always pay off our debt. Mm -hmm. That's just a great principle to keep in mind. Yeah. <laughs> As people in general. Even. Well, we, in business, they call it CapEx, long-term capital debt. Mm -hmm. You should finance that, you know? You're going to pay those loans off in five years at the kind of, or seven, at the rate that the, the equipment that you buy, you know. And then we, we, we learned what to borrow money for and what not. For example, we don't own any buildings. That would, have, that would have used up our capacity to grow our business because hmm. we would have spent the money on buildings. So we let the, we let the building owners own the buildings. Yeah. That was their business. And we would purchase you know, leases from them and yeah. we would work in there and they, they're spending their money on that. And, um, and then short-term things like, uh, it's hard to borrow money against receivables or against cash flow or that kind of stuff, but it's easy to borrow money to buy machines that can help you. Mm -hmm. So get it in the right categories. These are all things Kurt figured out and I learned from him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you have an incredible place there as we toured that uh, a couple years ago, I guess it has been now, but mm -hmm. it absolutely blew me away to see the automation even that you have, even though you have a lot of hands-on um, things and to kind of take me through that process when you, it's growing to the point where I can't build it myself all the time. I can't get a bunch of just people in here and we're just going to sit here and whittle out a guitar all the time. So what happens at that next level where you're like, we got to get some of these things to do part of the workforce, some of these machines you talk about, and we got to hire more people. 
And what does that look like in the middle of that growth? Because you're early on, you're hoping to sell a guitar, then you're hoping to sell a couple of guitars. At this point when you need machines, how many guitars are you selling? In terms of, I don't know if Well, you, let me explain uh, this. Yeah. I started early. Because when I, all my years in junior high and high school, I had to make some tools, jigs, fixtures, to make the things that I made. Mm. And uh, anyway, so I learned a lot from those guys. Let me just, those two teachers. Um, so in the early days, the first seven, eight years, I say I worked two days a day. I made guitars for a day. And then I went home and had dinner and I came back and I made tools for a day. Mm. Because to me, I didn't want my life to be Groundhog's Day. Wake up every day and have to do that stupid thing all over again. I wanted to make it easier for the next time, and I dedicated myself. This was at the time when I'm married. I'm no longer in our group we called Wings of Faith. That had disbanded. I wasn't going to Clarence Assembly of God anymore. I was married and going to Skyline. Church, was, I, we never missed church, and, and um, even... Uh, even Skyline in those days had Sunday night services, Wednesday night activities, and we would go to those things. Um, so I started making stuff. I've been known in my peer group, my generation of guitar builders around the world. We're all good friends. We all know each other because <laughs> nobody understands what you do as a guitar maker except another guitar maker. It's, it's really hard to explain what you do. Yeah. Because nobody knows one. I'm the only guitar maker that most people know, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and so I started doing that. So my machines would get more complicated, more complicated, more complicated. There was a time when I needed some more girth, things with motors on them. And I couldn't afford to buy them. And uh, Mount Miguel High School had night classes. And a really great teacher named Steve Shoemaker, his wife, Joan Shoemaker, was a the mayor of El Cajon for some time, maybe to, I guess it was uh, it was Mark before Mark Lewis before Bill mm -hmm. and Joan Shoemaker before Mark. Oh wow! Right, that was after he'd already retired, but he ran this shop. He had an incredible shop, um, and I went down there at, at night school, and I started welding and cutting and doing all the things that I learned in junior high school from Mr. Lavastida and building machines from the ground up to do a, th a this or a that or another thing. Then uh, I had had a lot of dedicated machines. In 1989, I had a friend who makes guitars in Newberry Park up by Thousand Oaks. His name's Tom Anderson. He makes electric guitars. He's like, I want to come down and see your shop. I've heard so many great things about it. He came down. We were in our second location. We moved out of Lemon Grove. We were in Santee giving him a tour. We came across this machine that did a thing. And, um, and it came from an old, old, old guitar factory. And I found it. It was a piece of junk. And I rebuilt it. And I was using it. It cut the fret slots for guitars, 20 of them at a time. I was pretty proud of that thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked Tom. He said, that's pretty cool. I go, how do you do it? And he said, well, I have this CNC mill. CNC means it's controlled by a computer, computer numerically controlled. And that wasn't really available in the 70s and the early 80s. But the same thing that the, the PC, the IBM AT, the, the same thing that made you do desktop publishing can make you do desktop guitar making. The same thing. That computer can drive this machine the same mm. way it can drive a printer, mm. right? And um, he said, I have the CNC machine. And I was like, tour's over. 
we're going to your place. <laughs> and literally the next day or the day after I was up there looking at this thing, and I go, what is this? I didn't know it was available. And he goes, well, my friend Dave Schechter, who I worked for at Schechter Guitars, when that place closed down, I started winding scatterwound pickups on my dining room table, my kitchen table to make a living, pickups for guitars, and then I eventually got to this. And Dave went to this, went to work for this company called Fidel, which is an acronym for Fred, Al, Dave, and Larry, and um, they started making the CNC machines. And he said, he called me up one day and he said, Tom, I'm selling the machine that I would make if I was going to make a machine to make a guitar. And Tom said, I have to see one. So Tom bought one. Wow. And I had one within a couple of months. Kurt arranged the financing, the lease financing for a hundred and some thousand dollar purchase when we were young. And this was 89. And that was more money in 80. You can buy them for less than that now. Wow. You know, they're so prolific. And I asked, I remember asking the machinery salesman, I said, I can't believe you're giving me this lease. He goes, well, the only question that we have when we lease something like that is how soon are you buying the next one? Because you're never going back. Yeah. And I never did go back. Wow. And so we got into that technology and there's still so much handwork and there's dedicated things we make, but we, we started getting into computer driven machines that can do the things that we did by hand, what, mostly shaping a part. What that level did that take you to from how many guitars to how many guitars once you got the automation in? Well, uh, it's more than that, and I'll talk about that in a second, but um, I guess we were making eight guitars a day when I bought that, and during the height of COVID, when demand was really high, we were making a thousand guitars a day. <laughs> That's a big difference. That's a whole nother topic, COVID, right? <laughs> COVID, the business picked up. First it, first it crashed. Everything was yeah. closed. Every, it was it. a ghost town. Nobody knew what was going on. We were all afraid. We were afraid. We, we, the first person I heard of to die, and one of the first people that did die, is an ex-Skyliner named Gary Bunzer. Mm. And he lived in Seattle. And if you go on YouTube and go for the RV doctor. Mm. He has a YouTube channel. That's Gary Bunzer. Mm. And he died right off the bat. And then the next person that I knew that died worked for us. He was our security officer. Uh, so everyone was scared. Yeah. And uh, things closed down. And it's like, this can't stay closed down. It wasn't closed down in Takate. We have a huge factory in Takate. We have a huge factory here. This one closed down. Next thing you know, there's 15 of us there around a ghost town. And it's like, well, so this is what it feels like to lose everything you've mm. worked for your whole entire life. Now I know what that feels like. Yeah. You know, I've driven off a cliff before, and I thought, this is what it feels like to die mm -hmm. in a crash. You know, you have that. Yeah. You know, I didn't die, and I didn't go out of business. I kind of know what it feels like, you know, when it, you're faced with, that, you know, and uh, uh, I called Bill Wells, our mayor, yep. and I said, Bill, I don't really get this being closed down thing. And he's like, you're not the droid we're looking for. Yeah. And he's like, this is our city. Open back up, open slowly, do it at the pace that you want to do. Now remember, we started getting OSHA rules as fast as anything because they can, they can use the bureaucracies yep. to kind of enforce any law 
breaking an OSHA rule can ruin you. So we're very, we're very cautious about that. We opened slowly, and then as we started getting going, then the Takati factory closed down. Mm. They came in with police tape. You got 12 hours to get out of here. If, you're, if this place isn't empty, you're gonna lose your Maquila license. Oh. Well, we go, well, can we keep the pilot light on? We need a couple, of, we can't just let the oven, you know, so to speak, yeah. cool down. They're like, okay, you can have two people here that do that. Well, we can make masks for you guys. We have a whole sewing line. We'll make masks because I, we know that your hospitals don't have them. We started making masks, <laughs> right, and giving them away. And one thing led to another, and it slowly crept back. And, and um, we went to 24-7 operation there so that we could take our people and divide the space, you know, people working here and here and there and there. And, yeah. and so the, just the, the social distancing made people happy. And uh, Because the demand had started to pick up, like, because <clears throat> people are at home. Some people are taking guitar, picking up guitar and starting to learn, starting because they're trying to kill their time and all that stuff. And so your like demand is going nuts. crazy. Right? Yeah, and we got ourselves going again, but supply chain oh, yeah. was messed up. Yeah. And containers went from $3,500 to get something from Europe, Africa, Asia to Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars if you could get one. There were so many times that we'd spend a month just getting a container, seven containers, eight wow. containers to be able to ship to our warehouse in Amsterdam. Um, every day it took a miracle to find the things that we needed to make guitars. Um, like it, it was every single day. It's like imagine. You know that you make this microphone, but you can't get this screen, yeah. and so you have a microphone with no screen, so you can't make it. Yeah. You know, um, or you or this cord's gone, or things with resin. So it was hard, but but production problems are always easier to solve than sales problems. So we had sales. We we provided stores with guitars. They sold everything they had in stock. We sold everything we had in stock. There were no guitars, there were no guitars. And then, five-eighths of the way through last year, boy, all of that just stopped. And we started, okay, well, we can build the inventory. Stores need inventory, we need inventory. And then it's kind of like, you know, you're driving along on the freeway and you see people up there and it seems to be slowing down. You're doing 75 and you're like, I guess it's time for me to stop right about now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, whoa, yeah, my boy, that like came that. up on me fast. Yep. So the end of this year was just the doldrums because wow. people, and I, we knew that would happen. I knew that would happen, but I didn't know when it would happen. You don't yeah. know when it's going to happen. Sure. And so... Now we have, right now we're living through a low sales period. I mean, we still, we still sold a lot of guitars. Yeah. But you always set your budget for what you're doing. Right. You know, you have a good year, you hire some things, you take on some obligation, people get more money, and then you're fixed with a fixed overhead. Yeah. And you gotta absorb that overhead. And, uh, but people right now, they're driving past the guitar store, straight to the airport, straight to the cruise line, straight to the convention. Imagine all the conventions that are happening around the world with 40, 50,000 people in them that didn't happen for two years. Yeah. Imagine all the concerts that didn't happen, all of the, mm -hmm. you know, I went to a, I went up to see Zach Brown uh, in uh, 
Hollywood Bowl because I was in Panama when he was playing down here, and him and I are friends, and we hadn't seen each other for a while, so I went up there. Hollywood Bowl, all these people around, not a mask on, and yeah. I'm like, I don't even remember this. <laughs> I don't even remember it. Yeah. That, that you know, mm -hmm. it was weird watching movies during the masked couple of years yeah. where you're like, those people aren't wearing a mask. Yeah. Became such a part of our and now you see television shows that were made two years ago and they got a mask on yeah, yeah but they're they're behind the times you know yes. so that was weird <laughs> business business is always hard no matter how good it is it's never a thing that lives on its own you got to wake up every day yeah you go through the ups happen. and downs you're talking about there's peaks and then there's some valleys and how does uh how do you lean on your faith in those times you know everybody is is wonderful when everything's up and to the right, but that doesn't last. And so over time, you've had to endure some low times and some difficult times. And what, what is that? How have you relied on your faith during those times? It takes a little experience. Yeah. Kind of hard to have. Uh, I think my faith is better with some experience. But, you know, Matthew 6 talks about, you know, don't worry about today and tomorrow. God's going to provide what you need when you need it. And I've, I've always learned that I that I get what I, I get what I need when I need it yeah. sometimes we get it way before sometimes but not always and I've also learned that you don't need a lot of miracles a couple in a life and I've had a couple in a life mm -hmm. I've had a couple things that can't be done one of them is silly and one of them is really important mm -hmm. but the silly one it's a wonderful story. Want me to tell it? Yeah, you mind sharing? So we're coming home on vacation. I have daughters that are this tall, and I always like to not go on vacation and then stop and do the long trudge home. I'm on vac we would usually stop and go to SeaWorld before we'd go to the home. We want to be on vacation until we get back to our door. Yeah. So we're coming along, and um, this was 30-some years ago. And I go, kids, you want to go to Disneyland? We're driving right by. And they're like, what? I'm like, we're going to go to Disneyland. And we go there. I got to see if I can get all of these things right. So we go there. I don't have cash to buy a ticket. I have a credit card. They don't take credit cards at Disneyland at the kiosk then. That ATM machine on the other side of the gate that you could go get cash and come out and buy it, they took personal checks and cash. Can you believe? <laughs> it's hard to remember. Can not. you believe that? And so I don't have enough money to buy even one ticket to get in there. And my kids are standing there, my wife's there, and it's like, God, I need a ticket. I need a ticket to get, how can I get in there to get cash and come out and buy this thing? Two seconds later, some lady walks up and goes, I have an extra ticket. Anybody need one? <laughs> That's the silly one. That's amazing. Yeah. But I mean, and and I don't count on silly ones, and yeah. I, I don't pray for a parking place yeah. unless someone's injured. Yeah. <clears throat> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't play for my team to win. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. <laughs> Our yeah, they need it. Rarely won in the past, so yeah. <laughs> and then the and then the and then the really really important one was Andy Andy Powers, yeah. our successor, and that was that's that's a miracle because it can't be it can't be done. Yeah, I wanted happened. to talk to you about that because here you are, at at the point you start looking for a successor. How long have you been in business? Uh, thirty five years. Okay, you're you're in business thirty five years, and this is 
this is your baby. I mean, it's fair to say, you know, this is something that has been a part of you for so long that you're not just going to highest bidder, see you later. You've got to really steward this thing. And so you start praying for a successor, which in so many ways is a unicorn. You're, you're praying for that unicorn. And so take me through that process. You're praying for a successor. And w- w- did you go through a bunch of different people? Or did God kind of lay Andy on a platter for you? How did that work out? I pulled out a pad. I don't save things. I wish I'd saved this. This is one thing I should have saved. I should have saved it, laminated it, put it in a frame. But I didn't. I pulled out a pad of paper. First, I talked with a fellow who worked for me named Larry Breedlove, who him and I were sort of a design team. He'd worked for me for a long time. We were good at designing things together. We had great. Have you ever worked with someone you can really work with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that the most wonderful thing? It's the best. Yeah. You're like, they're like, um, Jeremy, I think that, and you don't get offended. Mm-hmm. Somebody else can say that. You might get offended. Yep. Right? Sure. Vice versa. You make it better together because yeah. there's good chemistry and we, mm-hmm. it's just good. So him and I were like that, and I knew he was going to retire. Larry, when are you going to retire? I'm going to retire in four years. Okay, oh, man. I, I started thinking, well, who can take his place? And I realized that I don't need somebody that worked for me to take his place. Mm-hmm. I need somebody who was originally born to originally do it. And so I just wrote, dear God, I need one guitar maker, who, colon, is a good person, won't mess up their life, can make a long time commitment, who knows the complete history of guitar that I don't know as far back as it goes, who is a pro player, can play with anybody on any stage at any time, four, is self-taught, never worked for anybody else, never worked for another factory, five, is less than 30 years old and has 20 years of experience, Yeah, that's a unicorn, all right. Six is from San Diego. Wow. There may have been another one. I can't think of it right now. That's pretty specific. Yeah. You you don't put that on monster.com. Yeah, right. Or LinkedIn. Yeah. And then it's out there for five years. Yeah. But I thought about that list a lot. So one day we're at the NAMM show, and Jason Raz was playing at our booth. He's playing on our stage. And uh, NAMM show is our trade show. Yeah. And uh, I went back, and we had a little green room. I went back to say hi to him. This kid's playing with him, playing guitar with him. And he's like, hey, do you know Andy? And I go, no, it's Andy Powers. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. Andy's dad was there. His name's Chuck. He goes, Bob, I'm Chuck, Andy's dad. We met you years ago when Andy was 17. We sat behind you at Maricosta College at a Harvey Reed concert, and Andy showed you a ukulele and asked you questions about it. He was 17 years old. I go, I remember you too. And I go, Andy Powers, Andy Powers. I go, Andy, you're, oh, you're, you must be the guy, the Andy Powers that Kevin Kinnear talks about that makes these archtop guitars up in Oceanside. He goes, yeah, I guess I'm that Andy Powers. I go, cool, nice to meet you. So that passes. Then I go home, a week later, I go, Andy Powers, Andy Powers, Andy Powers. He's 28 years old, he's married, he's got his first kid on the way. 
And I know another guitar maker who lives in Oceanside and surfs every day like Andy, and his name's uh, Pepe Romero Jr. His father, Pepe Romero Sr., is, it's, they're the Romero brothers. They're like the royal family of guitars. They live in Del Mar, and they're, they're classical and flamenco players, mm -hmm. and they're famous world around. And uh, he works by himself. He's married, has a kid. And Andy and Pepe are both friends of mine, but they don't know each other. So I called them both and I said, hey, I got a place up in Solana Beach. I want you two to meet each other because you could be friends. My best friends in life have been other guitar builders. So let's come and spend a day, if you guys would like to, with me at that place. It's beautiful, it's right on the ocean. And um, the rules are we each have to bring a guitar that we made. For me, that means a guitar that I made, not a guitar that my company made. So we did that. Um, there's an archtop guitar that Andy brought classical guitar that Pepe brought, a steel string guitar that I brought. We had a great time. I said, well, the reason I'm here is I'd like to help you guys. If there's anything you need, if I can help you with machines, if I can help you with anything, I'd love to be able to help you guys. Uh, be cool if you're friends. Then, and I'd learned about Andy during that eight hours. And then another week later goes by and I'm sitting at a stoplight and that list comes up and I'm like, check. Check, 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 check. <laughs> I learned that Andy was 28. He made his first guitar when he was seven. Wow. Been doing it ever since. <laughs> the IRS caught up with him when he was 12, said, you're making too much money. You have to pay taxes. He's like, how do I do that? His dad said, figure it out. He put himself through college fixing his music professor's guitars and all that stuff, UCSD, homeschooled kid. Um, went to college, got a music degree and a degree in composition and conducting and that kind of thing. Incredible player, could play with anyone. Famous, famous people know who he is. His guitars are incredible. Best guitar maker. He's studied. He's, he's every single thing that was there. And he's in San Diego. And he's half Taylor, just like me. People said, oh, because he's... Andy Taylor Powers is his name, and that's his mom's side of the family. Oh, wow. And people go, wow, that's cool. He's half Taylor. I go, well, I'm half Taylor. Yeah. I'm no more Taylor than he is. <laughs> and, uh, and so I asked him to come down for lunch, and I said, Andy, can you name the guitar maker at? <laughs> He's like, no. I go, yeah, they're, they're corporations. Their guitars are made by a marketing, designed by a they don't have a wellspring. I go, I can't have that at Taylor. And I just said, I'm not in the habit of telling somebody what they're born for. But I think you're the guy who should take over Taylor. And I said, you know, I think I built a foundation that doesn't crumble, and I built a roof that doesn't leak. It's taken me my whole career. That's 40 years into it at that point. And you could do the inside. I'm kind of maybe you at Skyline, mm -hmm. Jeremy. Yeah. Because we pretty much have a foundation that doesn't crumble and a roof that doesn't leak. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? parallels there, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and so I said, so we're driving home. I go, so what do you think? He goes, well, where I make guitars isn't the most important thing. It's like if I could be the man God wants me to be mm. and the husband God wants me to be, where I make guitars. And so he thought about it. He's like, is someone going to get jealous? I go, they're not going to get jealous because they know they're not the person. Mm -hmm. 
And I did something in business that I've never done before, ever, ever. I sat down with my partner and my executive team, and I said, I'm making a decision. It's mine to make. It's not a vote. This is the one decision that I have to get right mm. in my whole entire career, and I've made it, and it's right. Mm. And they're like, rock and roll, Bob. We trust you. So Andy came. Um, Andy was unsure. He had a pretty good life. Yeah. He was making good money in a, inside a garage and playing music halftime all over. And, um, and then he said, well, you know, he had a few more questions. I go, look at it this way, Andy. You make about 12 guitars a year. You get a lot of money for them. You get a lot of money for them. Um, so you're improving the musical experience of a dozen people a year. Mm. Or you could improve the musical experience of couple hundred thousand people a year and change the state of the art of what guitars are and will be and that hit him he's like he's like that's a better way to spend my talent wow so he came now he's the president and ceo when you first said that to him i can't imagine he thought that was coming that you were going to say take over you know we want you to take over taylor guitar so was he Taken aback, or did he <laughs> pass out? Like, what What was... And he's the most even-killed person you'll ever... Mm. He he collects uh, data. If, there, if he can't say something nice, he won't say anything at all. He's very, uh, he's very, very thoughtful, and he's learned not to speak until his, his thoughts are gathered. So he processes. Even, yeah. even I, I, he's got a couple tells that I've learned mm -hmm. by watching him. But um, no, he's, he's, uh, he's special.